This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. My name is David Dalt and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. And I'm an assistant professor of Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my good friends Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Heidi is executive editor and vice president of National Catholic Reporter, a publication that connects Catholics to church, faith, and the common good with independent news, analysis, and spiritual reflection. Father Dan is the director of the Center for Spirituality and Professor of Philosophy, Religious Studies, and Theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. This week, we're going to do something slightly different because this episode is landing in the middle of Holy Week, and we have all been slammed moving up towards Holy Week. So we've decided that instead of looking at three different topics, we're going to take today and step back and talk about spirituality and Holy Week and and with a lot of references to pop culture and things that we're thinking about and listening to and watching right now. So that's the shape of the show today. It's going to be a little bit more of a loose format than you may be used to, but we'll be back to the regular format with the next episode. But Dan, why don't we go ahead and get a start with you? What have you been watching and listening to lately that's got you thinking about and preparing for Holy Week? Well, that's a great question. And so every year there are some kind of touchstones, and I think they're a classic movies, songs, activities, readings that that kind of get me in in the right place. But this year, I think more than the last two, it feels closer to a normal Lent that we've had. That's good news, bad news for me personally. The good news is that it's less pandemic-y than it has been, which is good. The bad news is everything else is ticked up a notch. And so regular listeners will know that a common complaint I have, and, and I know Heidi and David, we've commiserated about this in the past, is that I never really feel like Advent is a time I could really get deep into. It comes right after Thanksgiving. For us academics, it's the end of a semester. It's the shopping season. People are stressed out. And so Lent is the season, I think, that I find myself more ready to to get into. And in Holy Week is a time, I think a lot of our listeners may not know theologically, Holy Week is its own liturgical season. It's distinct in the church calendar. Easter is a liturgical season, as is Lent. But Lent technically ends with Palm Sunday. And, and then we have the Triduum, which of course is probably the most well-known and important part of Holy Week, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and then that closes, of course, with the, the great Easter vigil on Saturday night. So there are a couple different things. I grew up in, in a Catholic family in upstate New York. I went to Catholic schools. And so Holy Week was always something incorporated into the life of our education and of, of our family. I was very involved as an altar server and then later a sacristan at my home parish. And I feel very privileged to have had that experience because the, when I think of Holy Week, it's really a liturgical experience first and foremost. It's getting ready for these great liturgies. When I was uh, a kid and we had, you know, it's so hierarchical, which should be unsurprising for Roman Catholics to think about, but this hierarchy of altar servers, I was, quote unquote, the head altar server for a, a period of years. And that meant being the kind of assistant MC and then later an MC of, of these big liturgies. So prayer thinking about what the flow of those liturgies is. It's interesting that Holy Thursday begins with the sign of the cross, 
But the liturgy, the Triduum is actually one singular liturgy from Holy Thursday all the way to the, to, I shouldn't say the A word, <laughs> but to the great gospel acclamation at the Easter Vigil, really actually to the Gloria with the ringing of the bells and the turning on of the lights. Um, notice that, our listeners, that starting tomorrow, Thursday night, um, going through until the Easter Vigil, we, there's no final blessing. There's no final sign of the cross on Good Friday or on Holy Thursday. There's no music in the traditional sense, typically, you know, at least with in- instrumentalization after Holy Thursday and in, in the, in the repose of the Blessed Sacrament. So one of the things I want to talk a bit about is a unique service in the tradition of Good Friday that is is very liturgical and ecumenical, and it's known regularly as tenebrae, or as sometimes it's called a service of darkness. And it is a it's traditionally celebrated or performed on the evening of Good Friday at night. There are usually in a darkened church or a darkened space. There are musicians, a choir typically that comes, lectors who are there, and a congregation that gathers to hear both passages from Scripture, usually from Isaiah, and passages from the Suffering Servant hymns and from the Passion narrative, and then music that accompanies that. Traditionally, there have been a candelabra that is usually set up on the altar or someplace in the center of the sanctuary and with each of the readings and with the musical accompaniment, a candle is extinguished such that you get to the very last point at the darkest night part of the night at the end of Good Friday, and the last candle is extinguished in the darkness of the church, and people leave in silence. And I want to give a shout out to one particular setting of this that was uh, orchestrated, that was composed by Hal Hopson, and people can still buy the score. I, you can listen to YouTube and other places. I'm sure you can listen to examples of this particular service, but it was written as a whole service with the passages from scripture included in the script. So you could have as much as a full string orchestra involved. It's really, and I've heard that performed. I've heard that done. It's overwhelming. It's deeply moving. It's very powerful. And it it kind of elicits all the senses to reflect on what was just celebrated, recommemorated that we've reflected on that afternoon of Good Friday. So those who know like lessons and carols in Advent, it's something like that, but almost in reverse. So instead of getting building up toward the birth of Christ, we have this kind of diminishment of darkness kind of setting in. Dan, I'm so glad to hear you talk about this. I went to an Episcopal college down in Tennessee, and so even though I was not and have never been Episcopalian, uh, a lot of my initial understanding of liturgical structure comes out of being around the chapel there in the center of campus at University of the South is very much the kind of center point of life. And so even if you were not a participant in that particular tradition, you found yourself there and, and in the midst of it. So you mentioned lessons and carols. That's something that is well known to me. But a service that I remember from the Easter's in college is the Tenebrae service. And I've actually wondered, as I've been Catholic, I've never heard of a parish talk about this, reference it. I didn't know that this was something that the Catholics still did or or had available to them. And in fact, if I remember correctly, and I may be misremembering this, when when it happened at my college experience, the Tenebrae was mixed in with the Maundy Thursday service. And so there was a darkening of the chapel then. So I may be misremembering all that, but I'm just I'm glad to know that this is part of the tradition and something that might be available for me as a participant in liturgies. Well, I've been to a Tenebrae service. I think it was here at Holy Name Cathedral in Chicago, but I'm pretty sure it was on Wednesday night. Is that a thing that it's like on the Wednesday of Holy Week? Not that I know of. What's interesting is I, I don't think that there's any particular reason to have it on one day or another other than convenience or scheduling. I experienced that growing up in this parish, Catholic parish in upstate New York, was Good Friday. And I I was, in in anticipation of us talking about this, I looked up the composer site for this particular setting that's, that's still in publication. And in the description, it says, here, for instance, Tenebrae, a service of darkness may be performed as a service in its entirety, or portions of the work may be extracted to perform separately throughout Holy Week. This exceptionally moving work is destined to become a staple in Holy Week repertoire for decades to come. That's the publisher's little spin, obviously. But um, the Thursday thing, David, is interesting. I would In, in lower church Protestant communities and other Christian denominations, it, I, I could see how that might 
be really fitting on Thursday night. For us in the Catholic tradition, so much focus is placed on the reposing of the Blessed Sacrament and the stripping bare of the sanctuary, right? So there is something there from that time onward. The Wednesday night thing's a little more interesting to me. I That might just be a scheduling thing. Maybe they, they don't want to put too much on the plate of the community during the Triduum itself. That's similar. Similarly, every diocese sort of celebrates the Chrism liturgy differently too. It's supposed to take place on the morning of Holy Thursday. Usually, takes place like on the Tuesday of Holy Week or the weekend before. So that moves around as well. But David, to your question, I'll just say that in anticipation of our conversation and talking about this, I, I just looked on YouTube and. What's really neat about Tenebrae is that Tenebrae services have been recorded, I think, especially during the pandemic, and people can check out different versions of it and and different styles from all walks of Christian life, including numerous Catholic parishes, as well as Baptist churches. Like, this is something that is non-sacramental. It's not liturgical in the strict sense, but it's a really cool combination of music and reflection with sacred scripture in a way similar to Lessons and Carols. Dan, maybe for our listeners who don't know, maybe you can explain what the Chrism Mass is. Oh, yeah. So the Chrism Mass is a liturgy that takes place traditionally during Holy Week. The lectionary, the sacramentary, says that it should take place on uh, the morning of, of Holy Thursday. But for practical reasons, mostly planning and the busyness of a diocese and a set of parishes, usually it's moved to another date. Most dioceses that I've served in or worked in over the years, it's moved to Tuesday evening. And it's a gathering that takes place usually at the cathedral of the diocese or at one designated church. It's a liturgy celebrated by the bishop of the diocese with as many of the priests of the diocese and representatives of parishes from the diocese gathering. The title Chrism Mass or Chrism Liturgy is a reference to one of the three sacred oils um, that we have in the Catholic tradition. And the oil of chrism, which is used for ordinations and for baptisms and for confirmation. The other two oils, you have the oil of catechumens, which is used uh, during baptism as well. And you have the oil of the sick, which is used during the anointing of the sick. Every year at the chrism mass, these oils are consecrated. They're blessed and they're blessed by the bishop himself. And then usually, I should say usually, because this is what I've seen before, what I've witnessed, different representatives of the parishes of the whole diocese will come up and receive the oils that the parish will use for all of those sacraments the following year and bring them back, process them back to their respective parishes. So you can think about this as a gathering of the whole local church in one location around the bishop. It's a very moving experience. And it's a time where most dioceses will use that as an opportunity just nominally to celebrate the kind of renewal of one's priestly vocation, which I certainly appreciate a lot more theologically than what you'll see sometimes in parishes on Holy Thursday. Jesus did not establish the sacrament of orders at the Last Supper. The the reason that oftentimes gets associated is because certainly since the high Middle Ages through the, the Reformation in the 16th century, the Catholic Church has focused holy orders primarily on the Eucharist, right? is distinguishing, especially since the Reformation, from some of our Protestant sisters and brothers. And so if you think that's the case, the most important thing about a priest is only the Eucharist, that's the Mass is the whole thing, then you can see Holy Thursday as the institution of the Eucharist, which is true, the celebration of the Lord's Supper, as identified with the establishment of sacramental priesthood or presbyteral ministry. But as the Gospels make very clear and the history bears out, Jesus didn't ordain anybody on Thursday night. So actually, I've always found theologically the Chrism Mass, where you have these pastors and priests from all over the diocese con-celebrating the liturgy with the bishop who is consecrating these oils to be used in the celebration of the sacraments, all of those sacraments. There you have a great vision of presbyteral and Episcopal ministry. And and as I mentioned, that's usually celebrated on Tuesday. It's open to the public in dioceses. So look at your cathedral schedule or the bishop's webpage. And if you've never been, it's really worth checking out. So I'm intrigued by the idea of the Tenebrae as a kind of movable fast as opposed to a movable feast. And what I'm hearing in what you're saying of the description here is that it is oftentimes celebrated within the the time scale of the triduum but it is not part of the triduum so it is movable for that reason and it sounds like the chrism mass is similar that it can be moved to where a, a parish finds it convenient because it's not actually part i don't even know the words here of the liturgical space of the triduum 
Well, yes and no. The, the Chrismas is technically part of Holy Week. It is not part, you're right, it is not part of the Triduum per se, which is why the, the Roman Missal has it, if you're going to look at the rubrics as a default, has it take place on Thursday morning or sometime during the day before the Lord's Supper. Once Holy Thursday begins, it's a very clear rhythm of the Triduum as one liturgical experience, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and the great Easter Vigil. To me, one of the most moving experiences, both as a presider and as just a member of the congregation, is on Good Friday, when that liturgy begins in, in silence, and the presider comes up and lays prostrate in silence before the barren sanctuary. It has a lot of symbolism, I think, in a penitential way for the church today, and it's been used that way, like in, in services around clergy sexual abuse and, and that sort of thing. But Good Friday begins in silence, no sign of the cross, just a prayer, and then right into the liturgy of the word. And it ends in silence as well. You have the the distribution of communion, you have a prayer, and then the the, the presiders and ministers leave. So to me, it's I, I'm not a sacramental theologian. That's not my specialty. But as a presider, as a priest, as somebody with an MDiv and somebody who celebrates these uh, liturgies, it's something that is it always moves me tremendously. Well, I'll just jump in and say I also grew up in a parish very focused on Easter. I remember thinking that Easter was the main holiday of Christianity, not Christmas. So I was catechized well in my my 70s hippie, hippies parish. But and it wasn't until I was older that I got into some of the liturgies and other uh, parts of Holy Week. And especially when I was single and didn't have kids, I was able to really spend a lot of time in Holy Week going to various things. I'd been to this uh, Tenebrae once and uh, a variety of things from the washing of the feet on Holy Thursday to the visiting of parishes on Thursday night. I've done that before where you go around and visit. You're supposed to visit a certain number, right? Seven parishes. To the Christian-sponsored satyrs, which I know now are considered inappropriate appropriation of someone else's religious practice, to, to Good Friday, to our family was always very into going to the Easter Vigil Mass. And I remember as a high schooler, we would go to Vigil, and then I would work at the, the church's sort of child care thing on, on Easter Sunday since I'd already been to Mass. Once my kids were little, they would not sit through that lengthy of a service on Holy Saturday. But I'll be traveling this Holy Week and visiting my parents who spend the winter in the Phoenix area, and they belong to a great parish there. I'm going to give it a shout out, St. Patrick's Community in Scottsdale. And I'm really looking forward to some of the Holy Week services there because they really do liturgy well there. So it's a special and important time. And while this has been some getting out of pandemic sort of mindset. I feel like we're still not there yet. And so I don't know, this has been a very different Lent for me personally. And so it'll be interesting to see how that transition in Holy Week and moving on to the Easter season happens. What about you, David? What are you doing? Well, so as I've mentioned a couple of times in the last few episodes, I'm not really doing much with regard to Lent this year. My my family has you know, we are still members of our parish, we still support our parish, but we haven't physically been to our parish in a long time. And because of that, and for the reason that, that you just said, Heidi, about the fact that we're still not out of this kind of situation, even though a lot of places are starting to go maskless and things like that, we're just, we as a family and as an extended family, we are not ready to do that yet. And so going and, and gathering in indoor spaces with large crowds of people, particularly with singing, is not something that I'm going to go near this year. And probably not until 2023 would I even be considering that. So everything that I will be doing will be distanced and minimal this year with regard to Holy Week. Now, I'm a prayerful person, so I am involved in my own personal prayer life and my own kind of daily rituals with that. But in terms of the liturgies itself. And I will say I miss it because the Triduum is my favorite liturgical 
space. I didn't grow up in a Christian space of any kind. Easter to me was a distant thing that other people did that mainly involved eggs and Easter bunnies. It didn't really have any sort of connection to the religious at all. And so it has been as an adult that I have really come to Holy Week and those sorts of celebrations. And I very much am of the mind that you just said, Heidi, that is, Easter is the most important of the Christian holidays for me. And it's the one that I really marked each year as a a kind of real focal point. So it's sad to me to not be participating, but also it feels healthy right now to not be participating for a number of both practical and spiritual reasons. And so that's where we're at, and maybe next year it will be different, but I fully support people who are itching to get back, and I also fully support people who are like me and like my family, staying a little aloof from the celebrations this year. Well, I can tell you that in our family, we're borderline Easter obsessed. So I don't know if I, certainly I care about the spiritual aspects of the holiday. I know my children are anticipating the candy and the Easter baskets. And I can tell you, I have a son who, since he's been very small, has been very obsessed with peeps. The little marshmallow candies that people have strong opinions about, either you love them or you hate them. But he not only likes the candy, but he has like peep stuffed animals. And I, every year, have to go on a shopping expedition to try to find the latest peeps merchandise. And I've even been to the peep store in Pennsylvania (laughs) to try to find (laughs) peep stuff. So it's interesting to me, he's um, not a super religious uh, kid, but he does associate that as a source of comfort with uh, resurrection and with the the spiritual side of it. And so so some of the not so explicitly religious aspects of the holiday are important to me too. And another thing in our family is that my parents always have noted to me that their first date was on Good Friday and they went to the movies. And so they, growing up, once we were old enough to stay home alone, they would go to a movie on Good Friday. And so I know we're not supposed to be doing like fun things on Good Friday we should, between noon and three, but but going to the movies on Good Friday is a little bit of a family tradition for us too. Peeps, I'm for him. <laughs> <laughs> Though I'm a chocolate guy, I prefer chocolate more than the marshmallow. But for me, the most controversial candy, holiday candy, is is definitely candy corn at, at Halloween. That that stuff has no business being <laughs> existing, in my opinion. But I do know that there are yeah strong feelings around peeps. That's a really interesting interest and hobby. Good for him. So- um, I'm a peeps non-combatant. I am I'm Switzerland <laughs> on peeps. But the mention of Halloween brings in an interesting connection that I – we said that we we're going to be talking a little bit about pop culture. And one of the things that aired around Halloween last year and has been on my mind ever since and references Easter is the Netflix series Midnight Mass. And so I've been – when Midnight Mass first came out, there was a lot of buzz about it on social media. And my wife and I watched it and we were just we were riveted by this both by the way that it was produced because it's shot in an interesting way it's an interesting locale it's a very intriguing story that is told in a kind of unfolding manner where things are revealed but also because of the theological issues that it raised and there were some points where we would get done with an episode and my wife and I would just kind of look at each other and we would be like we've got to talk about this and and we're and my point to listeners is that if you haven't seen it you know months later we're still talking about it. And I have been involved in conversations with kind of acquaintances, friends, and strangers coordinated through social media and on places like Zoom about this piece of artwork. So I'm very taken with kind of the questions that it raises about religion, about religion gone right and gone wrong, but also it raises interesting questions about morality, resurrection, and what it means to care for a dying community. So there's just a lot there. I'm not sure if you two have seen it, but the connection between Halloween and Easter was just too rich to not mention Midnight Mass because it's still a piece of work that I'm thinking about and I've been writing about. And in fact, one of the projects I'm working on is this book for Yale. And in its current iteration, one of the chapters deals at one point with a meditation on some of the issues that were raised for me with Midnight Mass. So it's part of my scholarly work right now, too. 
I ha- I haven't seen it. It is on my radar. And like you, David, you're one of them. But a number of my friends and, and one of my siblings, at least too, has really recommended it. I've got such a long list of things. There's a lot of good stuff out there on, t- on TV, especially with all the streaming services these days. It's really hard to keep on track with things. And, and I've been traveling a lot more, which means that at the end of a day or af- during a long flight, I find myself resorting to things that don't require me to think or learn new things. So I've actually gone back and, and restarted Shit's Creek, which I've it's just so lighthearted and warm and, and touching. So that's been my kind of escape route lately. But when I have a bit more bandwidth, David. I, I'm going to get back to Midnight Mass. Speaking of movies, though, I, around Holy Week, Lent, Easter, I, I have the best of and worst of in, in my estimation. So I'm going to lay them out there for you. I grew up with the Ten Commandments. And it's amazing. Over the years of my teaching, I've become, I, I shouldn't say surprised, but I've observed that uh, a lot of young folks today have never seen Charlton Heston, Let My People Go, and and that whole famous classic movie now. Uh, and, and what I usually say to them is just turn on your TV on Good Friday to like TNT or something. It's going to be on some channel 24 hours a day at the end of Holy Week. And Dan, is this the Cecil B. DeMille movie? It sure from is. Way back? Okay. Because I, I have a distant memory of it. it. It has been probably decades since I have seen it, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Now you're making me feel even older, David, and you're older than me. This I have to, I'm sure, and maybe I'm miscrediting somebody here, but I want to give my mom credit because I assume when it comes to, quote, old-timey movies, I hope that offends no one, especially my mother, she was always the one who introduced that to me and my brothers. So we grew up on... Again, not that these aren't problematic with historical hindsight. The Music Man and Carousel and Grease and these like old, well, Grease isn't that old, these musicals, but as well as these kind of classic films like the Cecil B. DeMille, The Ten Commandments uh, with Charlton Heston. And that's how I first learned about him long before he became an NRA kind of prophet of sorts. So I, I like The Ten Commandments. Now, as a theologian, I had colleagues and dear friends who were Bible scholars, and I lived with an Old Testament professor for a long time in Chicago when we were both on faculty in in Chicago. And he would have, he has a whole list of the best and worst Exodus movies, including a really terrible movie that came out not long ago, I think called Exodus. And he would say the Cecil B. DeMille Ten Commandments was middle of the road, not so bad. But he always said the best was the Prince of Egypt, that that cartoon is the most kind of historically and biblically accurate of any of the Moses stories, the Exodus stories. So that's just a shout out. I've only seen, I've seen it a couple times many years ago. I'll tell you about the worst. You'll never catch me watching Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. I watched it in theaters. It is theologically problematic, dangerously problematic. Can you give us a quick um, overview of two or three things that are especially bad about it? Because it's been years since I've seen it. I've got some ideas, but I'd love a clarification there. Sure. So as my Old Testament colleague pointed out, the Prince of Egypt, this cartoon of all things, follows the biblical narrative, follows the text itself and draws from the sources, even though it's a a fictionalized kind of children's version of this. Mel Gibson almost does not follow the four Gospels in any way. In fact, famously, the major sort of inspiration for this depiction of the passion of Jesus's last days of earthly ministry were based on a a woman mystic's kind of uh, vision of what Jesus went through and his, you know, kind of suffering on behalf of humanity and all this. The long and short of it is there there are very serious problems around the persistence of anti-Semitism and supersessionism as depicted in that movie. There are problems around a kind of atonement theology and an understanding of substitutionary atonement, visions of or presentations of who God is and the kind of God the creator or God the father that demands this kind of blood sacrifice. There are just a lot of things that that in the end evoke, it's a very evocative movie. I saw it in the theaters when it came out back in 2003 or 2004, and I was an undergrad theology student, and there were a lot of symposia that were happening, including panels on campus of religion scholars and and Bible scholars and theologians analyzing it. So I, I remember seeing it with fellow theology majors and the chair of our department, and talked about it for a long time, analyzed it in class. And I can't help but offer, if you want to approach it as a work of art, and here is a movie like any other kind of horror genre or something like this, more power to you. But I I always caution people, this is not an accurate depiction of anything. Don't be confused by 
the reference to Aramaic in, in the conversational dialogue at times, that doesn't substantiate anything. You also have weird things too, like how Mel Gibson portrays Satan personified and this sort of thing. There's a lot that's really problematic. And the gratuity of violence, right? One of the things that a New Testament scholar I once heard analyzing the movie on a panel, on an academic panel said is, what gospel could you use to justify this depiction of Jesus? And he said, take for instance, Luke's account has a very different, this movie is night and day with Luke's account of the passion, which I think we're going to hear on Palm Sunday this year, if I remember correctly. Good Friday is usually John's version. And now I'm not sure. So I should know this. I should have looked this up. But in any event, um, that's a big no-no for me. And that's just a personal reason. Part of it's because I can't shut off my theological brain when watching this. And that's too much leap. One last thing I will say positively is Jesus Christ Superstar. I, I, I'm I a fan of that. I see Heidi's going nuts. So why don't you take it from here? <laughs> Speaking of uh, theater, we were just at my uh, son had a, a part in his school play and we were watching it this weekend, opening weekend. And my husband posed the question to the uh, people in our family, if you were in a play, what play would you want to be in? And I said, Jesus Christ Superstar, because I know all the words. <laughs> <laughs> I have force fed, although I don't know if they would see it that way, my kids to get some scriptural references, Jesus Christ Superstar and gospel, Godspell. So I'm dating myself clearly from the 70s there. But I was pleased to see my daughter was talking about some trivia they were doing in their religious ed this week that was around basic facts about Holy Week and the Passion. And she knew a lot of them. And some of the answers she knew were from being exposed through culture, you know, through movies, not just listening to the gospel at mass. So big fans of those. I, too, took a pass on Passion of the Christ. I don't watch horror movies at all. I can't handle that much depiction of violence and all, everything I read about it said it was okay for me to do that. I'll raise an interesting movie to discuss. It had some Holy Week implications, I think, but it's just the most recent movie that I saw. My daughter and I watched this movie that came out from uh, Disney, and it's a Pixar movie, and it was called Turning Red. So it's been a little bit controversial. It's a, a cartoon, again, like you mentioned, uh, Prince of Egypt. And it's a basic coming-of-age film. And the lead character is a 13-year-old Chinese-Canadian uh, girl. And I think one reviewer got into some hot water for saying that the movie was limiting because it didn't appeal to a broad audience because the character was Asian, which sort of indicates the, the limited number of movies that have lead Asian women as characters, and, and then one time you do and you get this complaint shows that we still have issues around race in Hollywood. But the uh, theme or the plot of the movie is interesting. So this young girl has this hereditary kind of condition or curse that when she gets a really strong emotion, she turns into a giant red panda. And apparently it's this thing that has been affecting women of her family for generations. So it had happened to her mother and her grandmother and her aunts. And there's this whole ritual that you have to go through on the night of the such and such moon or whatever so that you could get rid of this curse. And it really is interesting and it explores all kinds of things like mother-daughter relationships across generations and how to find your own path and and the importance of ritual. But what it's really about to me and what my daughter and I talked about afterwards was like, what do you do with strong emotions? And where do you go with that? Is that something to be suppressed? Or is it okay to sometimes turn into a red panda? <laughs> and so it, it was not the kind of movie that maybe adults would otherwise watch if they didn't have a teenage daughter like I do, but I recommend it. And it prompted a lot of really interesting conversations as a family. I know, I think, David, you said you saw it too, right? Yeah. So, so I've mentioned a couple times before that my family, part of how we get through problems and situations is we have family meetings and we try and run. And I think Dan and I have talked about this, that we run our household sort of like a Franciscan house in some ways in terms of our decision-making. But one of the things that came up at a recent family meeting was we want to have more time together. Even though we are in the house a lot together, we don't always take intentional time to be a family together. And what are some things that we can do about that? And one of the things that came up was we 
we should take some trips, like some day trips to like go visit places around the Chicago area. And the other was we should bring back movie nights because we had gotten out of the habit of watching movies together. And so one of the first movie nights that we've done recently was we watched Turning Red. And I will say, my wife and I sitting on the couch, my daughter had seen it before. She had watched uh, watched it on Disney+. Plus. My son, who is 10, had not seen it. My daughter's about to turn you know, into a teenager. But my, my wife and I were sitting there and we would occasionally kind of clasp hands and feel real wells of emotion because it spoke so much to the situation that we were in. Our daughter is learning how to navigate the fact that she has big, huge emotions. And that's something that we've been dealing with in our family. Dealing with is the we've been we've all been working together in our family is the better way that I want to say it, because it's she's not a problem to be fixed. But but we all are learning to live with the fact that I have big emotions. She has big emotions. And how do we navigate that? And I'm I'm glad that we watched this movie because, like you said, it gave us a lot of good ground for discussion and. And plus, it's just a—it's not a perfect movie, but there's a lot that the movie did right, and that I really enjoyed. I haven't seen it yet, but you've got me intrigued. I will say that also, and we're trying to get movie night back in our family too. And now, as my kids get older, there's a lot of disparate interests there. But trying to find something that the four of us can all stay awake through is sometimes a challenge. Maybe it's the Ten Commandments we should bring back for Holy Week. But I've been watching also, you mentioned, Dan, when you're really um, just have a lot going on in your life, you sometimes just need escapist type shows too. And I will say uh, my husband and I started Station Eleven at the recommendation of a friend. (laughs) I don't know. We're not done yet. But I have to say we found ourselves having to like space out how we could watch it, because first of all, we're so confused. Neither of us has read the book, but also it's just so heavy. And just re- the end of civilization or potential end of civilization because of pandemic, maybe not the best escapist show during or shortly after a pandemic. What does help me escape is he and I did watch, and I'm, you might not know this already, but a big fan of British TV, and including Masterpiece Theater on PBS. So I'm a member of my local PBS station. And they just did a series of Around the World in 80 Days. And I can't tell you, I wouldn't think this would be something I would love, but I loved it. It was just good television, good acting. There was some story of redemption and, and interesting plot lines there too, but it was also just fun. And also... With my daughter, I've also been watching the new Wonder Years. So they recreated the Wonder Years that I watched as a young person that was about going back to the 60s that featured a white family. And now the Wonder Years has been redone um, in the 2020s with an African-American family. And it's really well done. And my daughter and I have really been enjoying that. So so two more episodes to go on Station Eleven. So... Maybe over by Easter, I'll be able to complete that. <laughs> Station Eleven's also on my list. So now is Raised by Wolves, which is in its second season, another HBO show that I didn't know anything about until I listened to a Fresh Air interview on NPR with the creator, and I was just absolutely fascinated by it. It's about basically also a post-apocalyptic sort of uh, tale, which is very much in the uh, zeitgeist these days, that involves androids or robots that are carrying human babies or fetuses to another planet with the hope of kind of repopulating humanity after Earth has more or less been destroyed, right? So that seems fascinating, but like Station Eleven, a little heavy, a little involved. I, I need to have the bandwidth for it. I was just thinking, Heidi, a show that I also started and haven't had a chance to finish just because I've just been so busy, and these these hour-long sort of installments require attention, is the American version of Downton Abbey, The Gilded Age, which the creator of Downton Abbey also is responsible for, and it takes place in, in, in I think it's late, 19th, early 20th century New York, and it's fascinating. It's interesting. I don't know how much of it's historically accurate, but the the genre kind of setting is interesting. And the, yeah, I find it very interesting. Can I 
switch gears of the different kind of media here, which is music. I think we're used to Christmas, Advent, with our Christmas carols, secular and religious, and preferences for music and that kind of stuff. Are there Lenten, Holy Week, Easter-ish songs, religious or secular, that you're interested in? I'll, I'll give two, one, one secular, one religious that I really like. One is uh, a, a kind of classical choral piece that's usually associated with Good Friday as a religious hymn, and that is O Sacred Head Surrounded. That tune I, I find very moving. It's also something that inspired Simon and Garfunkel and one of their famous American sort of folk songs. And the tune is something I always find haunting, and it plays a significant role to tag back to Tenebrae that Hal Hobson's particular version uses the melody of O Sacred Head Surrounded as a, the key kind of reprisal theme and thread throughout the whole score, which is very moving. And then a, a kind of secular song that in recent years I've thought more and more is very fitting in a kind of Lenten, Holy Week, Holy Thursday to Good Friday vibe is a Regina Spector song from 2006 called Hero from her album Begin to Hope. And it's not a super well-known song. I don't even think it ever played on the radio. It's not a single. But those who know me know that one of my favorite movies is 500 Days of Summer, which came out in 2008 or 2009 with uh, Zoe Deschanel and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And this song plays in, in one of the episodes within this movie, which is very episodic. It's got all these many chapters and from beginning to end, and it plays in a scene that I often show when giving talks about biblical prophecy, where the screen splits between a guy's expectations for how an evening is going to go and the reality, and what is similar, what's different in the gap between the two. But the song Hero, I actually was giving a lecture years and years ago. I'm not, I, I am a musician. I, I play the piano and I played percussion in, in college and, and occasionally in liturgical music and bands. But... Um, when I hear songs, the first thing I hear is the melody, is the music, is the score. And lyrics come to me very secondarily because I'm not a singer. It's not the thing that I hear right away. So I have to give credit to a Jesuit of all people who years and years ago, when I was giving a lecture that involved talking about biblical prophecy, I showed this clip, this four-minute clip that has the whole song, Spectre's whole song from the soundtrack, Hero. And he said to me afterwards, he's like, did you notice that she talks a lot about original sin in that song. And I said, no, I didn't. And so I, I went back and looked at the lyrics more closely. And it's a very sparse, very lightly narrated song. There's a lot of repetition. It, it begins, he never ever saw it coming at all. And that's repeated a couple of times. And then it's all right. It's all right. It's all right. There's kind of this sense of reassurance. And then in the third stanza, you hear hey, open wide, here comes original sin. And that's repeated over again as well. And it's a haunting song. It's a beautifully haunting song, which is why I associate it with Good Friday and with the kind of triduum in its more silent still phases. So I, I commend that to folks to, to Google or, or Spotify or whatever and give it a listen. 500 Days of Summer is not very much of a <laughs> Lenten or Holy Week movie, but hey, that's a fun one to watch too. Do you have, what are your songs? Well, I would just say see previous discussion about Godspell and Jesus Christ Superstar. I'm trying to think what I like liturgically for Easter. I, I do know that I was following the Grammys. We're recording this a week early, so I was watching parts of that yesterday and realizing how old I am and how I don't know a lot of contemporary uh, singers. This is what happens, I think, when you um, have parenthood on your plate as well as other things. I have tickets to go see Elton John later this summer. I'm, I just saw that Stevie Nicks is coming. So again, I'm very much placing myself in a certain generation. I'm grateful at NCR for some younger folks who, who commission and write about pop culture for us that has a lot more contemporary kind of connections between music and spirituality. David, what about you? Well, since we've mentioned Jesus Christ Superstar a couple of times, I just need to mention the weird connection that I have to that play. And that is, I was part of the Atlanta music scene in the 1990s and early 2000s, and I was 
part of the loose crowd around a group called the Indigo Girls and oh. another really good band called Big Fish Ensemble. And uh, so Big Fish Ensemble, the drummer was a guy by the name of Michael Laurent. And he was talking to Amy Ray from the Indigo Girls at one point and was saying, I want to redo Jesus Christ Superstar. And Amy Ray said, so you want to like do a couple of songs and record them. He goes, no, I want to completely redo Jesus Christ Superstar. And so there was like the entire Atlanta music scene remounted this Andrew Lloyd Webber musical and it played at the Variety Playhouse down in Little Five Points. And for for nights and nights, they were doing this show. And so I had friends that were in the cast. I was part of the kind of crew that helped to document it and turn it into some videos and things like that. So I... I I have a a connection to that musical that is interesting just in the sense of it it's both ancient and very contemporary for me because it's reanimated this community around this art piece and I, it, it's got a real kind of important place in my heart and my history as a result of that and I love the music from it because of that and because of the way that it was recreated by these Atlanta musicians it it was hard rocking it was funky it was folky it was it was both uh, an an homage to the the old way of mounting the show, but they also did new things. So it's if you ever have a chance to listen to some of that music, I, I recommend it because it's a it was a fun show. Well, oh, and that one of the it's cool, yeah. Cool. And and one of the Indigo Girls' father is Don Saliers, right? The... Yeah, every single time that Emily Saliers and I would be in the same place, it, it became a joke eventually because I would turn to her and go, "This is so amazing! You're Don Saliers' daughter." <laughs> <laughs> Here she is, she a, didn't get a that famous very musician. Much, but it's, yeah. yeah, I was grilling tofu dogs next to her one day at <laughs> in Gerard McHugh's backyard, and I was like, "This is so cool! You're Don Salyer's daughter," and she laughed, and I laughed. And, and for yeah. listeners Wait, who, who don't who's know, who's Don Salyer's? Don Salyer's was a professor at Emory for a long time and taught sacred music and and is a, a real kind of luminary in liturgical music and liturgical music analysis. And he's her father, and so so when you get uh, Indigo, Indigo Girl songs like Prince of Darkness that has a real kind of very theological theme to it, you can trace the intention and the origin of these kinds of pieces of music to maybe conversations that happened around the dinner table, even though I'm not sure that Emily Salyers anymore would identify with the Christian tradition. Nevertheless, uh, a lot of her music and the, the music of the Indigo Girls is very suffused with that kind of imagery. That's interesting. That's interesting. I'm a big Indigo Girls fan. And I will just say that a friend of mine who recently saw the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical Cinderella in London says it's the best Andrew Lloyd Webber musical at all. So I don't know if I'm just passing that along for people who might be in London someday soon. (laughs) <laughs> I will say, having seen Love Never Dies, the sequel to The Phantom of the Opera, in London more than a decade ago, that was not one of Weber's greatest <laughs> musicals. With, with I, I, I have such a love, not a love-hate, but a mixed appreciation for Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice, because you have Phantom, you have Jesus Christ Superstar, you have Joseph. These shows are just extraordinary. But then you have Cats, <laughs> and then you have the sequel to Phantom, and these other things that are just flops. Let me just say, though, Heidi, in solidarity, as the youngest member of of this trio here called the Francis Effect. I also have no idea who all these musicians are. I read in the Times actually this morning because we're recording this a week early. As was mentioned already, the Grammys were last night and I was looking through the list. I just clicked the list in the New York Times, all the winners. And I'm like, John Baptiste, I know him. I know a couple other kind of folks who who won uh, big awards, but a lot of these in all genres, I, I don't really know. I will say this, though, speaking of musicians that I do know, who at one point I didn't know, very embarrassingly, in a conversation I had, is Macklemore, right? So I I know who he is now. About 10 years ago, he was headlining a concert in Boston, and somebody said something about going to see him, or tickets were available, and I'm like, I have no idea who that is. And then, of course, I heard his kind of biggest song that was on the radio that whole summer. I'm like, oh, okay, I know who this is. Well, the reason I bring him up is because yesterday on my flight, I was in a 5.40 a.m. flight out of Spokane, Washington, and I ended up texting a friend when I landed at my layover, and I said, I'm about 85% sure Macklemore was on my flight. And this person wrote back and said, I know he was on your flight because he headlined, it, uh, headlined a parent spring 
weekend at University of Washington, which the nearest airport to is Spokane. And so he was indeed with his very small entourage. I knew something was up when this guy looked familiar, but was in a hoodie and a mask and had a, a small entourage, including a very large security guard who was accompanying him onto the plane. But the funny thing is I saw him and what must be his producer or collaborator earlier that morning at about 4.45 a.m., eating at in the, the food area outside a uh, Burger King at the Spokane airport. So even big music stars are also people and have to eat airport food. <laughs> that is your grilling tofu dogs next to Emily Salyer's moments. That's, yeah. It is. <laughs> okay, now I feel left out. I don't know if I have a, a brush with a musical grade or not. I'll have to think about that. <laughs> well, when you go to your Elton John concert later this summer, maybe you'll have your chance. That's right. Okay. <laughs> That's a good selection of concerts, too, by the way. Speaking of Stevie Nicks, who doesn't want to go their own way? <laughs> so, <that's kinda laughs> so, friends, thank you for coming with us on this journey. It's a little lighter than we normally have gone this season on the show, but we've needed it, and maybe you have, too. We just know that we are praying for you, and we hope that you have a blessed Holy Week, and we appreciate always your prayers for us. And if you are listening to or watching anything that you want to share with us, please do either email us or put that on Twitter for us, and we'd love to engage with you that way. On behalf of Father Daniel and Heidi, we'll be back in two weeks, but have a blessed Easter, and thank you so much for listening today. Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. This show is made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at francisfxpod, and our website is also francisfxpod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Heidi and Father Daniel and I will be back in about two weeks. We're looking forward to being with you then. Thank you again for listening.